Okay, we have homework assignment due today. So a couple people have already turned it in on D2L, which is great. Um, if not, you can turn drop it off after class between here and lab or to submit it on the D2L Dropbox anytime before 6 o'clock tomorrow for a full credit. So that is due today. Quiz 6 for this class will be is up and available, should be up and available now. I did not double check it this morning, so I'll have to double check it afterwards. It should be up and available from today through Monday. So it'll be available through Monday for you to be able to take that. That covers chapters 13 and 14. 14 of which we have a tiny bit left to cover the first part of class today and then we'll be on to chapter 15. Third article review is due next week. So that'll be due next Friday. That's the last of the article reviews for you to do. And ignore this one, quiz 6, that doesn't apply to this class. That's 103, the planetary. Uh, exam 4, I know we just took exam 3. Why is exam 4 up so quick? Well, don't forget exam 3 was really like two weeks ago because of the hurricane, so it was really a couple weeks ago. So we're actually coming up due for one in a couple weeks, considering that the last day of classes is the 7th of December. Last day of class, and then final exam, yes, I've already put it in there on December 12th, scheduled from 9 to 11, Wednesday the 12th. So, yes, we're due for the fourth exam, which will cover chapters 13, 14, and 15, meaning we're almost there. We'll easily be through that next week, so I've scheduled that for the 19th. Um, I don't think we'll end up behind unless some, some odd, another odd hurricane or something else happens, some kind of water main break as we've had that will delay it. I already did. I promised my other class and I'll guarantee to you I won't delay it by one class period since that's the Monday before Thanksgiving, which most people are usually still here. But I'm not going to give it to you on the Wednesday. You know, if something happens and I have to push it back, I'm not going to, I'm going to have class on Wednesday. I'm not canceling class, but I'm not going to schedule an exam because I know people do travel. And sometimes you want to get going a little bit earlier and, you know, I understand if I'm going to have a small class that day, but I will be here. So I will not stitch it off one day at all. So it will be scheduled for the 19th. It won't end up being the 21st. If it had to get pushed off, it would get pushed off to the following week. Homework 3. No, it's not a mistake. It's due the 23rd. No, we're not here. But I'm still giving you the act. I'm not going to make you do it, turn it in on the 20. First, when it's the last day we're here, you still have till the Friday to complete it. I'll hand that one out next time on Monday, and you'll have, you can submit it. I wouldn't, you probably want to get it done earlier. I doubt you want to deal with that over Thanksgiving, but you can still submit it to the D2L Dropbox by Saturday. Yeah? Homework three. Homework seven. I can't, I, my writing is that bad. Homework three hopefully should be done and graded and back to you, long since back to you. But thank you. But yeah, homework seven. So that's why it is the 23rd. Yes, that is the Friday after Thanksgiving. So if you really want to spend Thanksgiving evening working on the homework, you can. But you may want to turn in earlier, but I'm just I'm not gonna make it due earlier. So some of you will say wait until that early that Friday morning, you know, doing it while you're out there out waiting in lines at you know Walmart and Target and Kmart and all the other other places for the big sales. Final exam, I did put that up there. Um, just to let you know when it's scheduled, we are scheduled. 9 o'clock Monday, Wednesday, Friday classes are scheduled for Wednesday the 12th. So we didn't get pushed to the very end, which is nice. Um, we're right in the middle of the week. And it's scheduled here from 9 till 11 a.m. So it is two, you have two hours, so it's a full lab, like a full Friday lab period here. Uh, I put it up for sure now that I just got an email about an hour ago that said they're not making up those two days. So. Last contact I just got said we're not going to make up the two days that were missed. Everything else is staying on schedule. So 
The exam, that means the ex otherwise the exam might have gotten switched off a day. Probably not our Wednesday one, but my other class has one on Monday, so that might have gotten changed. So that'll be the final exam, and I'll give you more information about that as we get, as we get closer. Biggest thing, as I've told you before, is save your exams that I've given back to you. And I will get those answers up hopefully shortly for the other, for the other exams. I've worked on them. I've got to finish sketching out because I didn't, I didn't sketch out on my answer key the answers to the essays. So I want to get that done before I put them up there so you at least have some idea of what I was looking for in each of those. Because you will see a few of those essays again. So I want you to have some idea of what, what I'm looking for on them. Any questions? No, no, no. All right. Picture of the day for today. Picture of the sky, right? Well, that's not unusual for what we usually see here. But this is actually a part of an emission nebula. This is Melat 15. It's the part of the Hart Nebula. Now we're looking in it, so you're not really seeing the whole idea of a heart shape there. You make it a little bit in, in up in the indentation in the one corner and imagine it kind of looping around here in a heart shape. But it's really looking in much more detail towards the inner parts of this nebula. It is an emission nebula. Now we talked about those before. That has to do with the hot stars exciting the gases that are left over from their formation. So some of these very hot stars here are now exciting these gases around it and causing them to glow with their characteristic colors. The characteristic colors are not what you're seeing in the picture though. Remember we talk about hydrogen is glowing red. Well this reddish glow here actually isn't hydrogen. It's actually it's a false color image so they've been color coded by different types of elements. So red represents one element but not hydrogen in this case. Red is actually sulfur. Hydrogen is green. So the greenish glow here, you see some of the hydrogen glowing out here perhaps. And the bluish, well some of it is reflection but some of the blue is actually oxygen. So some of it would be a reflection, some of it would actually be oxygen. So it's more of a color coded to highlight the different types of elements that are being excited in this nebula. So what exists in this? We see lots of sulfur, we see lots of oxygen, and lots of hydrogen. Now of course hydrogen is still dominant among, the whole, among all of it. Just different areas where hydrogen may be excited to more or lesser extent. We also see the darker areas where perhaps the star formation is still ongoing. So it looks like some areas here have kind of finished off and just stars have popped out of their cocoons. And some areas down here are still a little bit darker, denser areas where material is blocked out. Maybe that's where we can come back in a million years and see some new stars. Some of the old stars will be gone, some of the new ones will be popping up and illuminating and the nebula shape will change. So the nice nebula that we see will change very slowly over time. No, not in our lifetime, but come back typically, you know, hundreds of thousands to millions of years and we'll see quite a difference in the actual designs of these nebula as stars come and go. Any questions? 16, okay. Alrighty, well let's go back to our galaxy then. We're almost done with it. So right about on track now. We were looking at our center of our galaxy, which is the last, really the last section of this. So these are some images we were looking at in infrared, in radio, in x-rays, all looking at the center of our galaxy. Something that we cannot see in visible light. And when we zoom all the way in, in the radial part of the spectrum, again, all false colored, just looking at the intensities, blue is very weak, red is much, much stronger. So very strong emission here as we get very close to the center, but interesting how it's coming out in different patterns. You almost see a little spiral structure deep down in the heart of our own galaxy. 
And it would be interesting to know if that has anything to do with you know, why our galaxy is a spiral. Is it something to do with the black hole at the center of our galaxy that really is causing that to occur? Is there something going on there? Is that where the spiral arms are coming from? It's a good question and it's something we don't really know. You know, as I told you last time, where those spiral arms come from in the first place, I kind of explained how they, once they form, how they stay. But actually where they come from in the first place is a very good question and something astronomers are still working on. Now you notice this, but as you look at these, you're also seeing, you're zooming in. So this is a much wider field of view. You're looking at hundreds of parsecs here. You're looking, you're zooming into 25 parsecs and looking in the radio. Down to 5 parsecs, down to 1 parsec. One parsec is about a little over three light years. So that means that, you know, this here, the distance between the Earth and the nearest star would be about that much. So a little bit longer than this one parsec. So if you could put the Earth and one star here, that would be the difference between the Earth and Alpha Centauri. Within that area, we have millions of solar masses. What can you put in that condensed of an area that doesn't shine brightly in the visible? even, or in any of the other wavelengths particularly, that has that much mass. And that's telling us that there's likely, the only way to condense that much material into that small of a space is to have a black hole. So what do we see? When we get towards the galactic center, this isn't just the instant of the center itself, this is getting down towards that area. We have a star density a million times higher than we see here on Earth. So, go out at night, you see thousands of stars. Real dark sight. Imagine it a million times brighter. If you lived at the center of the galaxy, you wouldn't like to for other reasons. Radiation is extremely intense from that black hole and you really, we don't think that life would even form that close to it. But if you could go there and see, I mean the sky would be glowingly bright, you know, even at night. For every star you see out there now, imagine a million more. So there's one star in Orion, there's a million more and then another, a million more. It's a lot of stars. Aren't you glad you don't live there and have to do that lab we did? <laughs> couple weeks ago. We had to sketch all the stars. Instead of sketching a hundred or so, you'd have to sketch, you know, a hundred million stars. There's also some gas, a ring of, ring of glass around it. Very strong magnetic fields. So you have this larger ring of gas. You also have a smaller ring of gas much further in. This is what would be the, we call the accretion disk, material that is flowing into that black hole. Remember, it doesn't go in straight. It's just a black hole isn't just this great vacuum cleaner that sucks everything into it. The material slowly spirals into it and gets heated and gets heated up. And that is where these strong X-rays are coming from. The strong X-rays are coming from likely that black hole at the center of our galaxy. Again, not a black hole like the other ones we talked about previously. When I talked about black holes before, we talked about them in terms of stars exploding. Well, if the star was a hundred times the mass of the sun, you might form a black hole that's eight or ten mass solar masses. A relatively small black hole. Here we're talking about black holes that have been many black holes combining, so much material combining, that you have millions of times the mass of the sun. That's not a very big black hole for as we get, when we get out to the next chapter and we look at galaxies. That's a relatively, Milky Way has a relatively small black hole at the center compared to the other galaxies. We'll talk about ones that are many more than just four million solar masses. So there's ones that are much, much larger than that. But still, it's, we're, get, we're working our way up there. We've gone from black holes that were relatively small to much bigger. Now the size of the black hole really doesn't change a whole lot. I mean, the black hole is still essentially, as far as we know, everything compressed down to a point. So nothing really changes 
there in terms of you know, the, how big the black hole is. Yes, the event horizon gets pushed further out, what we call the surface of the black hole. gets pushed further out a little bit. And where a strong influence is, is a little bit larger than it would be. But to us on the Earth here and on the Sun orbiting around it, we don't notice the difference. You know, it could be four million stars down there all condensed, almost touching each other. How you do that, I don't know, but it could be that. And we'd orbit around it just the same as we orbit around that black hole. It doesn't affect anything that far out. But this is what we see down there. And in order to explain the fact that we see all these stars, yes, we know they're going to be condensed more, these strong rotating rings, the strong X-ray source, the magnetic field, not coming from the black hole itself, but coming from the material around it, all leads us to believe that's a very large black hole. Because there's nothing else that can concentrate that much mass into that small of a space. So, apparently, there is a gigantic black hole at the galactic center. That is what is causing everything that we see. Now again, you can't see a black hole directly. Right? You can have a black hole right here in this room. It might feel the gravity if it was a big one. Right? If it was a little tiny one, you might not even notice it, honestly. If you, had a real, if you could make a black hole that was you know, a tiny fraction of a solar mass, it could be here and you wouldn't even notice it. But you can't see it. You can only see the effects that it causes outside of its event horizon. So you've got to be outside a certain radius, outside a certain distance from that star, that black hole. Then you can have material spiraling around it at very fast speeds, being heated up, and causing it to glow, causing it to emit a lot of x-rays in this case. You're heating it up to extremely high temperatures. That's where we see all those x-rays. And that's where we looked at that picture of the galactic center. You saw one of them was in x-rays. That's where we're seeing a lot of x-ray emission from the galactic center. A lot of radio emission. There'd be a lot of visible light emission if you could get down there and see it. You just can't get there and see that through, through the immense amount of dust between us and the black hole. But we, so we say there's a black hole there, and I've given you some of the observations that we see. But I want to show you a couple others that really give us a real good idea of how we can determine, you know, how do we determine how big the mass of this black hole is. We talked about determining the mass of the galaxy. Well, yeah, the black hole is included in that, but so is a lot of other material down there. But how big, how can we determine exactly what the mass of just the black hole is? How much material is just associated with this black hole? And the way we can do that is to look at stars close to the galactic center. There are ways to determine and to measure. Measurements have been made of stars that are very close to the center of this galaxy. And we can actually watch them orbit. Go back to everybody's favorite Kepler's Law Lab. And once you know that, if you know their orbits, again, the whole idea of the lab was to have you do it once, but to remember the idea. Once you know their orbits, we can determine their masses. So if we do that, we can actually figure out what the mass is of that black hole. And we come up with a number of around four million times the mass of the sun concentrated into that very central portion, very tiny central portion. Again, we're talking a distance between the Earth and the nearest star. And we're concentrating that much mass into that very small area. Now here's an image of it. Here's sort of an image if we look deep down there in the infrared. Again, we can't see it in the visible. But when we look deep down in the infrared, we see we do see a number of stars. Now, Sagittarius A is the radio source. Sagittarius A star is meant to signify the black hole at the center. So when we look at that and we look at the orbit of some of these stars, we can actually watch these stars move. So we could actually watch this star over the period of, what, 1992 
Here it was, and we watched it, 94, 96, 99. We could see it moving, and it actually came in very close to the black hole, not within the event horizon, not close enough that it's tidally disrupted, but it close enough that it was accelerated to very high speeds. So 2001, 2002, 2003, by now it's out and around here again, making its orbit. If we measure that, we can measure the radius of the orbit, what its average radius is, we can measure that. We can measure how long it takes it to go around once, and we can go back and use the Kepler's Law equation to determine the mass. How much mass must there be in the mass of this star plus the mass of the black hole? Well, if we're getting a mass of 3.7 million solar masses, then this really doesn't matter all that much. It doesn't matter whether it's a one solar mass star or a ten solar mass star, does it really matter? Because it's not going to be it's not going to be much compared to 3.7. It's either 3.7 million plus 1. Well, probably within your well within your measurement error still. 3.7 million plus 10 still doesn't matter. You know, if you got 3.7 million dollars, you're worried about 1 1 dollar or 10 dollars more, you know, exactly in your account? Probably not. You're not even going to notice it in there. If you got 37 dollars, then it makes a big difference, right? Then 10 10 bucks is a big chunk of what you got at the time. Now I want to show this again. I'm going to pause this. This is actually the last one. I want to pause this and I'm going to actually show this in an animation that makes it look a little bit. You get, to, you get to see some of these orbits and what's been traced out. So I'm going to go ahead and exit here for a second and then we'll come back to this and then I will do, after I do this short video, where is it? There we are. So this is actually, let me pause here. As to what was going on, it makes this a little bit more of an effect than just looking at the nice plot on here. It makes a little more effect to actually see it to see those orbits. Come on, there we go. Makes a little more effect to actually see those orbits and to watch that star come zooming in, zip right by here and go tearing right back out. And the only way you can account for that kind of motion in that small of an area is with a black hole. So as he said, the black hole was about 4 million solar masses. Here it's an estimate of about 3.7. So we're still trying to determine it exactly. What exactly is it? You know. More orbits, looking at more of those stars, watching more of these stars orbit, the more we do, we'll get a better estimate of that black hole's mass. But you can see, when you're talking about 3.7 million solar masses, it doesn't matter what the star is. It doesn't matter how massive that star is or how low mass that star is. If it's a typical regular star of any kind, you know, between a tenth of a solar mass and a hundred solar masses, it's not going to make a difference in the mass of the, of the black hole. So that's sort of some of the evidence that we have that shows that the center of our galaxy has a black hole. And that means we think that lots of other galaxies, in fact most other galaxies, probably have a black hole at the center as well. So it's not just confined to us. It's not something unusual in the Milky Way galaxy. We can't observe this much detail in other galaxies, but we can observe orbits. We can observe gas clouds orbiting in other galaxies. And we can sort of interpolate and determine how much mass is out there how fast they are and by how fast they are moving. And in some case, they're much larger than actually this four solar mass, so four million solar masses we have at the center of our, our galaxy. So, finishing up our galaxy here, chapter 14. Our galaxy is um, stars and gas, essentially, bound together by its own gravity. So, it's not going anyplace, it's not tearing, it's not spreading apart. And we talked about globular and open clusters. So open clusters are slowly expanding out into space. Come back and they're gone. The galaxies are physically bound together by their own gravity. So they are held together. They're not going anyplace. If you come back in 
millions or billions of years, the overall structure, you know, the, yes, the spiral's rotating, yes, stars are coming and going over that time, but the overall structure of the galaxy will still remain the same and the galaxy will still be there. Our observations also show us that the galaxy is a spiral. So we can't see it directly, but we can make some measurements of the gas and the motions to sort of determine how the galaxy is structured in our part. And we can actually trace out the different spiral arms in our part of the galaxy. It's very difficult, again, because you can't really see our galaxy when you're stuck inside it. Variable stars help us with determining the distances. We talked about the RR Lyrae and the Cepheids in order to use those to determine distances. And knowing, knowing those stars, identifying them in globular clusters in our galaxy or in other nearby galaxies allow us to determine the distances. And it's one of the first measurements we've been able to use, we're able to use to determine that those galaxies out there, those spiral nebulae, were actually other galaxies. Were actually other galaxies like our own. In order to determine how big our galaxy really was, we used globular clusters. We measured the distances of the globular clusters and if you recall, center of our galaxy was here. We had the halo around it and you had all these globular clusters scattered around the whole galaxy because when we're right here, all we can see is this little area, close, especially close in the disk. The globular clusters are very bright and there are a lot of them up out of the disk so we can see them at even larger distances. So when we looked here and just counted stars, we, over, we underestimated the size of our galaxy. We said everything was real close to us. We're close to the center. You know, going back to what we thought hundreds of years ago. Well, we're pretty close to the center of our galaxy like we used to think that the Earth was the center of everything. So now it wasn't the Earth, now it would have been the Sun. Once we measured the distances to all these globular clusters, they should be randomly spread out throughout this halo of the galaxy. And there's a lot more of them over here than there are over here meaning that we're not centered. We're not at the center of our galaxy. Fortunately, you wouldn't want to be that close to the black hole, not just because it's a black hole, but because of the radiation occurring. That would you know, wipe out anything that you would normally, any life that would normally be able to be there. Star formation is primarily occurring in the disk of the galaxy, so that's where all the gas and dust were. And that's where the stars were formed. That's where the stars were formed. That's why we see when we look at galaxies, other spiral galaxies, all of them, all the spiral arms are blue. Blue because that's where stars are forming. Very young stars that are the brightest don't live very long, so they have to stay right where they, right where they formed. They don't have time to move out of the area from which they formed. So those stars are actually sort of highlighting the spiral arms. In terms of understanding the spiral arms, I told you we have no clue where they, where they came from, how they started. But once they do start, we look at them as a density wave. So sort of like that traffic jam or the example I gave with you know passing all these cars passing a truck. Well, the whole thing is moving. They're not winding with the galaxy. That truck is moving down the highway, maybe a lot slower than everybody else. And as people are passing it, that jam sort of moves with it. But at a much slower rate than the overall speed of the highway. The cars actually go through the jam. They go through, they're slowed down for a little bit. That's why we see a lot more stars in the spiral arms. You see a lot more stars around the cars around the truck, not because they're gathered there and they just want to follow the truck but because there's a jam there and they have to get through. Once they get through it, then they take off again and the stars actually move through that jam. So the stars will move through the spiral arms and not stay in a specific spiral arm over time. The rotation curve we looked at, and don't forget rotation curve, we're going to look at that again and well, I might not get to it today, but we'll certainly look at it again next week in other galaxies. It told us that there is a lot of mass 
outside, you know, this is what we detect. There's a lot of mass out here somewhere that we cannot see to account for the motion of all these stars because everything is moving much too fast. If we were out at this edge, we should have things slowing down and moving a lot slower the way they do in the solar system. The only way to explain the motions that we have, well, I gave you two. I said one is that you got a lot of dark matter out there. The other would be that we don't really understand gravity. So you've got to come up with something better than Einstein's. Einstein works for everything else we know. Why, does it, why is it not working at these very large distances? So, you know, one of those two has to be, has to be correct. There has to be something to explain <coughs> what we see. And that's what we call dark matter. We will come back and talk about dark matter yeah, in about two chapters. We're going to go through galaxies in general first. And then, activity near the center of our galaxy. We watch those stars rotate. We watch the intense x-ray. Saw the intense x-ray emissions. Everything going on there suggests about a 4 million solar mass black hole is near the center. Watching those stars, that's the only way you think that's going to take a star and whip it around that quick is if this star is going down and being whipped around by something so many times more massive than it. The way our sun does with a comet. Comet comes in close to the sun and it can get its orbit completely. It can be completely turned around in a very short period of time. This did not take a very long time period to do. Remember that video ran, the little animation that they ran in the video ran from 95, what was it, 95 to 2006, so 11 years. Most of that was out here. That actual swing was a very small period of time. It takes a lot of gravity to be able to swing it around like that. So, but we will come back and look at some more big black holes in the coming chapters as well. So, any questions on our galaxy? No? Okay. Let's go on then, chapter 15. Chapter 15 is normal and active galaxies. So, interesting galaxy there. We'll see a number, we'll see a number of pictures of pictures of them. This one has a couple of nice lobes of material out to the side, so very different than some of the some of the other galaxies. You can almost see a little bit of spiral structure down here towards the center, maybe, and eh, not so well out here, but maybe some kind of little bit of structure down deep down in it. But there's two different types of galaxies that we're going to look at. And the first half of this chapter is what we call normal galaxies. Normal galaxies are the typical everyday galaxy that you see we see out there. And I'll go through the different types of them. There's a number of different types, but they're not unusual in any way. There are also active galaxies which are, more un, which are more unusual. They're emitting a lot more energy, for example, and they're you know, emitting different types of energy than a typical galaxy. And that's what we're going to look at, look at in these. So what is going on with normal galaxies? What are the different types? So I'm going to look at, we're going to go through Hubble's classification. That's a way of classifying galaxies. We looked at a way of classifying stars. Galaxies are done in a somewhat similar manner. They're classified by their appearance. That's originally how stars were done. It was the appearance of the spectrum. Remember, that's why we're stuck with OBAFGKM, because it was classified by how the spectra looked. Well, that's how they looked. We didn't have a physical understanding. In terms of galaxies, it may be something similar. Right now, they're classified as to just to their appearance. You know, there's spiral galaxies, there's elliptical galaxies, there's a couple of other types I'll talk about, but they're classified by how they look and not necessarily anything physical going on between them. And we'll look at how galaxies are distributed. So are they uniform? Are they spread throughout the universe pretty evenly? Or are they clumped up like stars? You know, stars within our galaxy tend to be in clusters. So how are the galaxies distributed? 
Hubble's law will give us a new distance measurement, a way to determine distances out essentially to the edge of the universe. So one way to get, get measure the distances to objects very, very far away. We've still gotten only this very, we still have another, uh, we've got a couple more things to add, but we've got another one or two things to add, but Hubble's law will be sort of the top of the distance ladder. How do we determine the distances to the most distant galaxies? <coughs> then the last part of the chapter is on active galaxies. And we'll come back, this central engine is what we, what we mean by the black hole. So we're going to come back and look at what I just talked about for our galaxy. We're now going to look about our understanding for other galaxies. What happens when you feed that central engine a little bit more than ours? You know, our, ours is certainly consuming material. That black hole is consuming material, but not at a great rate. What happens if you were throwing a lot of material into that black hole? Right? We're getting x-rays from our center of our galaxy. What would happen if you put 10 times or 100 times the amount of material every year in there? You get a lot more energy coming out. So we're going to we'll look at that as well in terms of active galaxies. Now, how recent most of this stuff is? I picked up a nice old book here. This is, when was it copyright? I think it was copyright 30s. This is a 1940 edition of an astronomy book. So it goes through a lot of the stuff we've talked about so far. It talks about the planets. It talks about the stars. But this, I think it was 1942. But the galaxy section, so everything we talk about here for the next month, which is about what we have left in the class, starts right about there. About the last seven pages. So, you know, 70 years ago, that's what we knew about galaxies. We could write it, in, write, it, you know, write it in an astronomy book in seven pages. Yours is split off into, not even counting our galaxy, chapters 15, 16, 17, all of that. You see what we did and so it was done in seven pages here. And most of what we thought there is probably now known to be wrong. You know, a hundred years ago, it wasn't even that sure whether galaxies were part of our own galaxy. We was just one galaxy and galaxy and universe were one and the same. Or whether they were really other galaxies out there. They were really something much further away. And part of that was because we could not measure the distances. It wasn't until we came up with things like Cepheids to be able to measure these distances and show hey, wait, these things are much too far away. They have to be other galaxies that was able to demonstrate that. So we're going to look at the classification here. We're going to classify galaxies by their, by their appearance, by how they look. So starting off with spiral galaxies. Okay, You like some of this. Some of this actually makes sense. Some of, it, some of it's a little off, but not as, not as bad as the other ones. Spiral galaxies are type S. Wow, how do we do that? You know, not type K, right? Should be a type K based on astronomers. Another type S for spiral. Okay. And they're classified by the size of the bulge at the center. So you can have a very big bulge, very large central bulge portion, middle size, or a much smaller, much more compact central bulge. And then they're just split up by A, B, and C. So you'd have S for spiral. A is a very large bulge. So this would be the smallest, and this would be the large. So relatively simple classification. There's not hundreds. There, there are divisions between it, and there actually are class galaxies that are sometimes classified as SAB, because it's, it's not quite SA and it's not quite SB. So those are distinct, you know, um, measurements that we make. We say whether it's an SA, an SB, or an SC, but it's actually they change gradually between them. 
So you could really subdivide it a lot finer if you wanted to. But overall, it's just a very coarse measurement. It's just, okay, how big is the bulge? So it's all done observationally. How big does the galaxy, the bulge of the galaxy, appear to be? Not how big the galaxy is itself, but how big the, the bulge of the galaxy is. Here it's much more compact, very down to the center here. A little bit bigger, very large bulge. So those are, those are spiral galaxies. That's our, our own galaxy is something, well, kind of similar to these. We actually, are, there's another type of spiral galaxy as well that we'll look at that's called a barred spiral, and that's actually what our galaxy is. But let's go through here before we go these. Uh, type A, again, has the largest bulge. Type B is smaller. Type C is the smallest bulge. Also, tends to have the, what is it, tightly, tightly bound? Tightly bound spiral. So those spiral arms are, you know, tightly wound much closer together. Lots more spiral arms much closer together. Whereas these have, are much more loosely bound. So you'll see things like, you know, very wide open spiral arms, They're almost waving out in the air like this. The other ones are much more tightly, much more wrapped around. That's good, but that's not quite as good as the bulge size. So we're still not exactly, you know, we're sort of at a stage here where we were with stellar classification a long time ago. Stellar classification is now known what is causing it. We still don't know what is causing the galaxies to be different. Why do some spiral galaxies have a large bulge and some have a small? Why do some have tightly bound spiral arms and some have loosely bound spiral arms? Why do most of the small ones have loosely bound spiral arms but some of them don't? Why do most of the largest bulges have tightly bound spiral arms but some of them don't? Good questions. And I can't say we completely understand exactly what is causing this. This is just the way we go about trying to group galaxies into similar types. So pretty much the SA galaxies are all similar, all have a very large bulge. The SC galaxies have a much smaller bulge, tend to have loose, tend to be more loosely bound, but not, not perfect. The other thing that we see is that the rest of the galaxy, everything else in the galaxies is pretty much the same as ours. They've got a center, they've got a disk, they have a bulge, they have a halo, so all the parts of the galaxy that we see, spiral arms of course, it wouldn't be a spiral galaxy if you don't have spiral arms. Right? Can't have a spiral galaxy if you don't have spiral arms. All the other parts are the same. So we see the same portions of the galaxy. We see they all, they all have a disk. There are no spiral galaxies that, do not, that are not condensed to a disk. So that tells us something about how the galaxies have formed. The galaxies also have a bulge. They all have a halo. Maybe to differing sizes on the bulge, depending on the classification, but they all have that piece there. They all have the same pieces. And we'll see some other galaxies aren't quite like this. Some other galaxies don't have these properties. There are some galaxies that really don't have a disk or spiral arms. So not every galaxy that we see in the universe is a spiral galaxy like ours. There are, a lot, there are other types of galaxies out there as well which is what we're going to be looking at in the coming slides. But for the spirals, again, you've got to like it. You've got to use S's for spirals, so it's nice and easy to remember. So S means spiral. 
A, B, C, there's nothing that goes further down. There are no D's or anything beyond. C is the most wide open spiral arms, the smallest bulges, would be type C. So there's only those three, only those three to worry about in terms of regular spiral galaxies. Now there's another type of spiral galaxy, which is the kind of, that are, we are, which is a barred spiral. So a barred spiral galaxy looks just like the spiral galaxies that we were looking at before. So our spiral galaxy here was something like this. But a barred spiral galaxy actually has almost a bar going through the center, it looks like. Bar of material, not really a physical steel bar or anything, you know, a bar of material. And then the, the spiral arms come off the edge of that. Why? Good question. I can't tell you why. Some galaxies are like this and some are, some are like this. What is going on differently? That's something that astronomers are still trying to discover. So we're still trying to learn, you know, really what's going on in those galaxies that would cause some to have a, have a bar through the center, but some not. Otherwise, they'd look identical. So what is the difference between those two? What is going on there? And again, that's a very good question. Now, if we look at some of these barred spirals, can you see the distinction between that and the other ones? There's very distinctly here that there's a bar. There's your bar going through there. The spiral arms are coming out here and out here. Bar going through here and then the spiral arms start at the end of the bar. In terms of classifying them, they are SB for spiral with the bar. Boy, this is making too much sense. Now, something's got to go wrong later on. You know it, right? So SBA. SBB, SBC. The ABC mean the same thing they mean up there. Didn't even confuse you. Didn't, oh, let's do CBA for that one just to confuse everybody. Nope. A means the same thing. A still means the largest bulge, as you see off there to the left. C still means the smallest bulge, as you see off to the right. So, same, same classification. The only difference is that these ones have a bar. Again, can I tell you why? No. I can't tell you why some have a bar and some don't. But if we go back, to this one, can you see the difference? There's definitely no sign of a bar here, right? These, these arms look like they curl right in almost to the center, right into the, right into the bulge. You don't see any kind of bar here, any kind of bar in that one. Whereas when you look in the other one, there, there's a very distinct difference. So they definitely have these two different classes of spiral galaxies. For some reason, some of them form with a bar at the center and some of them do not. Now in terms of classifying them again, the classification is, you know, barred spiral, SA, SB, SC. I'm not going to write it all down again, but SA is the largest bulge, SC is the smallest. Now the next type of galaxy is an elliptical galaxy. So these are quite different than a spiral. They do not have spiral arms. They do not have a disk. So we have ellipticals. which have no spiral arms. So it can't be a spiral galaxy. They don't have any spiral arms. We immediately know they're not that. But they also have no disk. Okay, I just erased my picture there so I could write. But if we take out the disk of the galaxy, the only thing that's left, you got the halo and you might have a bulge of material there, extra material towards the center. But you've taken out that whole disk. You've got a much more spherical galaxy. 
Okay, so you really have what it is is a great big halo. You still have that halo, but the whole galaxy is essentially the halo. So for some reason, some galaxies, when they form, don't condense to a disk. The material stays out here. All the star formation goes on at once, and there's no young stars forming. These elliptical galaxies don't have any young stars. Elliptical galaxies come in a big variety of sizes. Spiral galaxies, yeah, a little bit. There's big spiral galaxies and there's little spiral galaxies, but elliptical galaxies have an incredible range of size. They can come, go down to things that we call dwarf ellipticals that might not even have a million stars. Essentially think of them as a giant globular cluster. You know, just a big glob of stars. That's all, an elliptical, that's all an elliptical galaxy is. Those are little teeny tiny ones up to gigantic ones that are many times the size of our Milky Way. Trillions of stars. So trillions of solar masses, much, much larger ones. The giant ellipticals are some that dominate some big clusters of galaxies out in space. So big range in size. Yes, there's a range in size in spirals. There are bigger spirals and littler spirals, but not to the same extent we get with ellipticals. Ellipticals have a tremendous variation in size. The other thing that we do not see in an elliptical is any evidence of star formation. So no gas, no dust, at least cool gas and dust that would form stars. We don't see any of that. We see a lot of it in the spiral galaxies. Spiral galaxies have those blue spiral arms where young stars have formed. But elliptical galaxies don't have that. So also, no gas, dust. So none of that. doesn't have any of that. So really what you have is just a big, big glob of stars. Not saying that there's absolutely no gas there, but nothing like what we see in a spiral galaxy where we see lots of star formation. Nothing like that at all. There is some gas. They do have some gas, especially hot gas, well outside the area of the galaxy. So actually making it even bigger, there's a lot of hot gas. Nothing that's ever going to condense into stars. It's moving around much too quick and it's not condensed into enough pockets. It's that cool gas that is cold enough and dense enough that will begin to form stars. But they do have this outer area where there is a lot of, where there could be a lot of hot gas around them. So, and it will, far beyond what the galaxy is. Now, we've got to classify these galaxies too. Spirals were so easy, we can't make ellipticals quite so easy, right? Well, maybe. Ellipticals are classified as type B. Boy, it's staying too easy, isn't it? What are we going to do? Goodness. We'll have to reclassify them ourselves just to make it harder. Won't do that to you. So e elliptical galaxies, classified as type E. But they're classified also not by size, although I made a big deal about mentioning the size and telling you what the size was like here that there was a size difference. They're not classified by size. They're classified by their shape. How do you classify an elliptical galaxy by shape? They're big blobs, right? But the big blobs can have different shapes and they have E0 is essentially a great big spherical blob. So E0 is a nice big sphere. You could also flatten it down a little bit. And you go from E0, E1, E2, E3, and down to the very flattest ones, not near as flat as a spiral galaxy's disk, but more flattened, is a type E7. And I need to get some better pictures to show the extent here, but you can see that E2 is a little bit rounder. Then when you get down, can you sort of see that's much more flattened. Not a flat disk like we saw in the spiral galaxies, but a little more flattened area. A little more flattened area here. 
that we see in these types as you go from E2 to E3 to E5. Now again, like the spirals, there's things that are in between. So you might go E0, you might go, you know, maybe it's not quite E, it's E0, it's E1. So there's, you know, very, there's smooth variations in between. It's not quite as, you know, succinct as we put it. It's E0 or it's E1 or it's E2 or it's E3. Sort of like the spectral classifications. They were classified as O, B, A, F, G, K, M. Well, since they've subdivided them into, you know, well, it's not necessarily an A, maybe it's an A1 or an A2 or an A3 as you subdivide it even more. But that's what we see in elliptical galaxies. And again, we're making this classification way too easy to remember. S's for spirals, SB's for barred spirals, and E's for ellipticals. Now you really know something else is coming up, right? Something else has to come up to confuse you. And those are what we call the lenticular galaxies. So lenticulars are the next ones. Lenticular galaxies are disk galaxies that have no spiral arms. So they're a lot like spiral galaxies without the spiral arms. Which in a way, this is the one that kind of throws the naming off a little bit. No, they're not. Lenticular galaxies aren't L's. They're actually S's as well. They're actually an S0 or an S B0. So, eh, think of them as like spiral galaxies without the spiral arms. So, they're classified similarly, but they're not classified as an S A, S B, or S C because you don't have all that material to classify them. They're actually classified as an S0 or an S B0. But they're similar in many ways. They are disk galaxies. They have a disk and bulge but they have no spiral arms, no gas and dust. So they don't have any of that material. No, no, so no, no young stars forming, no spiral arms, nothing else going on there. And you see some of them, they just look like, they look a lot like the elliptical galaxies depending on how you turn them on, but if you can turn some of these edgewise, you actually see they're very flattened. But there's no sign of spiral structure on it at all. Here you've got a little bit of one with a bar going through the center right here. And again, nothing else that you see associated with it. Very smooth. Normally with a spiral galaxy you'd see all the spiral arms there. How are we doing? What are we on to? Let me, let me put up the last one and then I'll, I'll review them and do the classification on Monday. Last ones are our regulars. Kind of everything else, right? Everything that doesn't, ha doesn't have a spiral shape, doesn't have a di spiral or disk shape, that takes care of all these. This takes care of everything that's a big ellipse or big blob. Irregular is kind of everything else. There are lots of little tiny galaxies. Um, they're classified usually as irregular, IRR. So, did pretty good there. Come on, one, two, three, four out of five. Not, not too bad. The only one that doesn't match up directly would be the lenticulars. So, did pretty good on the classifications there compared to what we've been doing. So, Irregulars are usually classified as IRR. There's actually two su couple subtypes within them. They can be irregular one or irregular two. Don't worry about that. It's just basic ideas that they're irregular galaxies. And some of them are irregular because something else is going on. They might be colliding, as in this case. It looks like a galaxy has collided and sort of splashed, something splashed through it and kind of pushed off the whole material in the middle or collected the material in the middle and left this big hole in it, gravitationally interacting. Some of them might be very small galaxies with just a lot of material. 
strewn around with no discernible shape. No spiral structure, no elliptical structure. A lot of gas and dust. So they are forming stars primarily. So lots of star formation. So gas and dust with star formation. So in that way they're much like in a spiral, but not completely. They don't have any kind of spiral structure. So what I'll do on Monday is go through and go through and reclassify, I'll remind you of the classifications and we're going to put together what they call the tuning fork diagram, which is a way of sort of organizing the classifications to try to help you remember them. And I'll go through over at that on Monday. Questions? Nope. Okay. Go ahead, we'll take a short break and I'll get the computers ready for the lab.